All right, for those of you that are visiting this morning, we're going to be looking again in my study in Daniel, and I'll be looking at the last two chapters of Daniel chapter, or, yeah, Daniel chapter 11 and 12. Um, some of this will make more sense with the previous messages I gave, but hopefully you can still take something home from this, learn something today as we dive into these two chapters One of, uh, I guess, the weaknesses of looking at, is there an issue? Yes, thank you. I was going to do that. I forgot. And with the snow on the ground, ice on the ground outside, it probably doesn't help. It's kind of hard to get it dark enough in here. Um, One of the weaknesses of going verse by verse is... I didn't look far enough ahead at chapters 11 and 12. And as that message has been even longer ago, but driving home, my wife and I started discussing some of the things I'd said in the message, and I think I misspoke on a couple of things, and we'll look at that today. Um, Chapter 10 seemed to be by itself with no prophecy, but I think as I dug into chapters 11 and 12, I think this is all one Prophecy, one event, if that makes sense. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 all took place at the same time. And so as we look there in um, Daniel chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Also I in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and strengthen him. And when I first looked at that, it sounds like it's Daniel speaking, but I think it's actually the person who is giving the prophecy to Daniel. And so he's only reiterating that I stood with Daniel before. I've been here before. It's not that this prophecy was given during the year of Darius the Mede, but rather is (laughs) just pointing backwards. And so it's a little confusing. So this all happened, I believe, during the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, as we see in verse 1 of chapter 10. I want to read... The first, uh, yeah, four verses there of Daniel chapter 11. I already read verse 1, so I'll go to 2. And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of the heaven and not to his posterity nor according to his dominion, which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others besides those. So it looks, as we look here in these verses, first verses of chapter 11, it actually sounds kind of familiar with what we looked at in Daniel chapter 8. It mentions some of the same people. Um, once again, it refers to, I, I believe, looking, there are a lot of Bible scholars that believe that verses 3 and 4 there are once again speaking of Alexander the Great, as I mentioned in my message on Daniel 8. So why is... 
uh, Alexander the Great once again being prophesied here. I'm guessing it's just to help make more sense to the prophecy as it goes along as we look at the other prophecies in these two chapters. One of the things as I dove into this that took me some time to try to wrap my mind around and I don't have all the answers. You come up to me afterwards and go, well, what about this? What about that? I'd be happy to discuss it, happy to look at it, but I don't have all the answers either. But according to secular history, there were actually 12 rulers, kings from the time of Cyrus, from the time of this prophecy until Alexander the Great ended the Persian Empire, that group of empires. So why does the Bible only say there are four? So we'll look into that. We'll look at that this morning. But as we look here, it mentions there are four kings. It mentions four kings of Persia. And then it mentions Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great did end a portion of the Persian Empire. Now later the Persians would start up again and that's a huge, that would take hours to look into that deeply. And I don't think that's necessary. It's not in Scripture. But for those of you who enjoy history and know, if you remember that in 1979 the Shah was taken down in Iran, he was the last of another dynasty of kings and empires in Persia. So Persia has an incredibly long history. And just like I mentioned in one of my previous messages, if you look at some of their hatred towards Israel and wanting to destroy Israel, I think it goes all the way back here. All the way back to these prophecies in Daniel. The conflicts and the power struggles are nothing new. They didn't just start in 1979. They didn't just start... 1900, they, they go way back, over 2,000 years. So we're going to look at the four, what Bible scholars believe are the four kings mentioned here in Daniel chapter 11. I am sorry, I'm going to butcher these names, and my children probably can do better than me. They hear some of these names from their history teachers are laughing right now. But, uh, so bear with me. Uh, the first one, Kim says, the, two, uh, the second, ruled from 530 to 522. Bardia ruled only for a few months, less than a year. Darius the Great then ruled from 522 to 486. And Xerxes, sorry, I had it in my mind last night. I kept rolling it in my mind. I got to have this. Xerxes ruled from 486 to 465. So we're going to look at these um, as a group. Not going to really look at the first three. But who is Xerxes and why do Bible scholars believe that he was this fourth king? And why are none of the rest of the eight mentioned after him? And I'm not going to take your time to look at those eight. I would recommend um, a couple of sources if you want to look more into this on your own time. I looked a lot at two places, Wikipedia, but understand Wikipedia are, is not a Christian 
website, and so they put things in there that are contrary to the Scripture. As I'm going through, it's fascinating looking at what lines up and where they come out and say, we don't believe. We don't believe the Bible. We believe it's, in one point we'll look at, they have a term for it, um, romantic. They believe it's a romantic view. But yet we can see a lot of this line up. There's also to understand the gap between Xerxes and Alexander the Great was approximately 130 years. So 465 B.C., Xerxes dies. Alexander the Great would not come to power and take over the Persian Empire until 329. So you're looking at 300 or 130 years between them. So why doesn't the Bible include this? I'm going to give my theory, and that's all it's worth. Um, but I believe it's because the, those eight kings had very little to do with the Holy Lands. There was very little. Even though Persia ruled over Israel during that time, Israel was not an independent nation. Xerxes, and I'm, the reason I put Xerxes one is because there are later, and those eight kings there are other. There's Xerxes two and Xerxes three. The reason I believe the Bible picks this out is Xerxes I was the last one to actually go pass through the Holy Lands and try to conquer areas there. But according to verse 2 of Daniel 11 here, it says that the king would stir up all against the realm of Grecia. To me, this sounds like someone who's convincing a nation to go to war against Greece. And so, I looked at Wikipedia. It's, like I said, it's a secular opinion. It's not equal to biblical truth. But we can find clues, and I found interesting clues there. Wikipedia says, a Xerxes I, or one, is notable in Western history because he invaded Greece in 480 B.C. And he held the mainland of Greece for around a year. Now, Wikipedia then goes on to say that it's a romantic idea to think that Xerxes was the king mentioned in Esther. But a lot of biblical scholars believe that this Xerxes I is the king that married Queen Esther. And so, if we see here, according to this prophecy of what would happen 100, 150 years later, it is very likely that the king Azarias mentioned in Esther is also this king Xerxes. Another interesting thing is that we say, well, why do these other kings not, are not mentioned here in prophecy? I just think they just didn't do a whole lot when it came to dominating and taking over land, taking over kingdoms. And to help you understand the influence Xerxes had, there would be 130 years later till Alexander the Great would come on the scene. And he still, it was noted in Wikipedia that he still, that much of what Xerxes' bad reputation comes from is things said by Alexander the Great about him. So 130 years had passed and he still hated him so much he was saying all these terrible things about him. So obviously this man was very, very influential in that time. But in 330 B.C., Artaxerxes, the fifth 
killed Darius III, and a year later, Alexander the Great killed Artaxerxes V, ending, and I'm going to butcher this again, the Achaemenid Empire that existed from the time of Daniel until Alexander the Great ended it. And then we'll go on looking at further. We're going to stop with that part of the prophecy and move on. So Daniel chapter 11, picking up at verse 5, we start to see a new time period here. The Grecian Empire would only hold the land of Israel under its rule for about 15, 20 years. It's hard to know exactly how many years in there because as the Grecian Empire fell 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 apart, lost their power over the Holy Lands, at what point did that switch? It's hard to know. Daniel 11, verse 5. And the king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him, and have dominion, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. In the end of years, they shall join themselves together. For the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand, nor his arm. But she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. But out of a branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army, and shall enter in the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against them, and shall prevail, and shall also carry captives into Egypt their gods with their princes, and with their precious vessels of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return into his own land. But his son shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. And the king of the south shall be moved with color and shall come forth and fight with him. Even with the king of the north and he shall set forth a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into his hand. And when he shall have taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up, and he shall cast down many, ten thousands. But he shall not be strengthened by it. For the king of the north shall be return, and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches. And for lack of time, I'm going to stop reading there. We continue to see through the rest of the verses down through verse 20, of this back and forth and many different things that happened. If this interests you, I recommend that you go to a website called EnduringWord.com and you could spend a half hour to an hour just going through and they explain a lot of this prophecy and where, who the people were that um, fulfilled these prophecies. It's, it's interesting, but I don't think it's edifying for today. So, who are these kingdoms in the north and the south? And here's where I'm going to try to use a map to help you understand. They believe that the northern king was in this area of Syria. Now, it may, this is modern-day map, so help me understand. Syria was much larger back then. So, most likely, went into Iraq, went up here into Turkey. I'm not sure exactly how far it went. So that's the northern king that we see here in Daniel 11. The southern king was down here in Egypt. And the Egyptian kingdom most likely stretched down. Um, as you're reading through here, you'll even see, as in chapter 11 or 12, Ethiopia is mentioned. 
Modern-day Ethiopia actually lies south here of Sudan, is basically straight south of Israel. Those kingdoms ebbed and flowed, as we see here. They fight. One gets stronger. They fight. The northern one gets stronger, and they come down and they fight. Why does God put that in the Bible? Why do we care? And I think it's because it involved his people. Everything we see in Daniel, as I mentioned in a previous message, involved the land. God cared about the land of Israel. Yes, he cared about the people more, but he also cared about his land because that there was the promises of God were tied to the land, to the people. If you understand what I'm saying, the covenant was not just made with the people, it was made with their connection to the land. And we see that all through Scripture with prophecy that if they disobey him, what, are, what happens? They're sent out of the land. If they, when God reconciles, when they come back to him, they come back to the land. This north and south fight between Egypt and Syria, what happens? Where is Israel in this? This little country right here is the land of Israel. Back then, it would have stretched probably out here farther. Not sure how far up into Lebanon. Every time one king went the other way, what did they do? They crossed the land of Israel. And every time, there was armies invading, killing, stealing. I believe that's why you have all these verses talking about back and forth. And we'll pick up verse 21. We have a new king mentioned here. It still calls him a he, but it does, by the descriptions, it's a different king. So Daniel 11, verse 21. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom. But he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And with arms of a flood they shall be overflown from before him and shall be broken. Yea, also the price of the covenant, the prince of the covenant, sorry. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. And he shall enter peacefully, even upon the flattest places of the province. And he shall do that which his, his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and the spoil and riches. Yea, he shall forecast his vices against the strongholds, even for a time, and he shall stir up his power and, he shall, and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. Yea, they that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down slain. <clears throat> and both these kings' hearts shall to be due mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper. For yet the end shall be at the time appointed. Then shall he return into his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant. And he shall do exploits and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come towards the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. For the ships of Chittim shall come against him, Therefore, he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So, he, so shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them for that forsake the holy covenant. 
and arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be hoping with a little help. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end because it is yet for a time appointed. So we have a new king come along here. At first he does as the old kings did and go down to the south to fight. But this king from the north then for some reason becomes angry and with the people of Israel, the people that are in the land, the Holy Land. And now he turns his violence, his anger on them. And it seems like it just goes on and on. And it's quite a time of testing. One thing that scholars, like everyone has their opinion and everyone believes they're right, as, as we often do, but is this king, the vile king, some believe was Antichrist the fourth, is this one person or is it a numerous kingdoms? And I don't have the answer to that. And I believe it's possible that it is one person or it's also represented by a number of kingdoms. If we know the history of Israel from this time until 1948... Israel has been a place of armies coming through. Through the Dark Ages, the Christian crusaders would go in and take over the land, and then the Muslims would come in and take it back over. And in, the, in that time, the land of Israel flipped back and forth and suffered a lot. And I don't know for sure. But in the end, why is this in here? Why is God showing Daniel this? He's showing what the land, what the people, what the Israelites were going to face in the coming years. Now moving on to uh, verses 36 through 39. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that is determined for that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall, be, shall he honor the God of forces and a God whom his fathers knew not. Shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. What's hard to tell here is it sounds in some ways like he's still talking about the same king and yet it sounds almost like a new king that has not been mentioned before. 
And here's where there's a fair bit of controversy. Some people believe this is talking actually to what to us today would be future. And it does sound a lot like the Antichrist that, is, that um, we see in Revelations that I believe is yet to come. Whether it's a king from the past or the, for the future, I believe they're very similar in the sense that they don't honor God, they don't believe in Him. They lift up themselves above God. But we even have that today. There are people in power, rich people who basically look at themselves and treat themselves as if they were gods. They lift themselves up above the true God. So that is nothing new. But I believe that when the final Antichrist comes, he will put all the previous ones to shame. So how does this happen? Because of man's rejection of the one true God, they fall for past kings, and when the final Antichrist comes, they will also fall for him. Catching up my PowerPoint to where I'm at here. Let's read verses 40 to 45. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come up against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. And he shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the children of Ammon. He shall stretch, out, he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have the power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. With tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet shall... Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. Whoever this king is will basically have rule over both the north and the south. He'll take riches. It'll look like he has achieved and reached a pinnacle. And it says he will even make a tabernacle or his palace between the seas in the holy mountain, indicating it looked like he was going to set up his kingdom somewhere in the, in the land of Israel. But yet it says God will, you know, God will bring it to an end. Even though it looks like there's no one that can defeat him, it will come to an end. As I thought of this history of the north and the south, the kingdoms of Syria and of Egypt fighting against each other, going back and forth all through here in Daniel 11. For those of you who know history here and more recent, in the last 70 years since Israel became a nation, these two kingdoms of Syria and Egypt have actually found common 
goals of working together in what? In trying to destroy the nation of Israel that has been reestablished. And so we see these, what was once arch enemies, finding ways to work together again, but not for a good purpose. So these nations have often been at odds most of the time for the last 3,000 years. Looking now in Daniel chapter 12, try to move through this quickly here. We move to a different part of the prophecy. Chapter 12, verse 1, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of the people, for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to the same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. To me this sounds like the end of the world, and I believe that's what it's talking about here. I believe if we look at parts of Revelation, this sounds like the great tribulation. And so God is showing Daniel in this prophecy that eventually there'll be this extremely bad time. Even as bad as everything looked at like all through Daniel chapter 11, there's going to be a time that's even much worse. But yet he gives some hope here. And what is that? There will be those who will be faithful. There will be those who will be saved out of that. Not necessarily to blessings and riches and a good life here on this earth, but eternal, everlasting life. And so as we look at all this prophecy this morning, what thing can we carry away from it that's vital. And that that's no matter what's going on, the thing that counts the most is is our name written in the book of life in this book. Because if it is, here it says that they will shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they'll even help others to turn to righteousness. There'll be many. And so there's hope, even in this prophecy that sounds depressing, discouraging, there's hope that there will be those that are faithful. Moving on to verse 4, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time and the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Then I, Daniel, looked, and beheld, there stood other two, the one on, on this side of the bank of the river and the other on that side of the bank of the river. And the one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time and times and time and a half, 
and we shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people. All these things shall be finished. And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. But go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. Doesn't it sound, verse 4, doesn't that sound like the time we're living in? Knowledge increasing. I'm sure you've heard it before said in messages, but we look around us, and even more so than when I was a boy. I know when I was a boy, we, a lot of us had encyclopedias in our homes. We could go to those encyclopedias, and we thought, wow, we have so much knowledge right at our fingertips. And that was because of the invention, the printing press. But since then, in the last 30 years, we now have smartphones where I don't even need my encyclopedias. How many have gone and looked in the encyclopedia in the last two years? Maybe some school children? No, it doesn't even look like school children are going to encyclopedias anymore. Knowledge has increased. The fascinating thing is, I don't see here anywhere it mentioned wisdom increased. As knowledge increases, it seems like wisdom decreases. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. So it's important for us as believers to stay focused. Even with all this knowledge, what, are we, what do we need to do? It says here, Blessed is he that waiteth. We need to wait on God. We need to trust Him, lean on Him. We can read the news. We can know what's going on in Asia. We can know what's going, think we know what's going on in Ukraine and you name it, right? All over the world. And I don't know that it's, I don't think it's wrong to know what, be aware of what's going on. But those things will not save us. What will save us? What will make us ready? Waiting on God. Trusting Him. People are still trying... Daniel, it's interesting, Daniel wanted to know when the end was. So how, how long, how many, you know, how many years, how much time is going to pass? And God said, it's, it's sealed. It's not for you to know. And it's still sealed for us over 2,000 years later. And if we are frustrated by the fact that we don't know when the end is, stop and think that even Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour, it says. Scripture says. Turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, verse 31. 
Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. Even Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour. If he doesn't know it, if it does not matter to him, it shouldn't matter to us. We shouldn't be spending hours and weeks and months worrying about when the end is. But we need to watch and be ready. In closing, turn with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 20. And they watched him and sent forth spies. Sorry, I'm in Luke 21. I'm in the wrong chapter. My bad. Luke 21, verse 20. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And I think this verse here is referring back to numerous passages, but it's definitely referring back to Daniel. But woe unto them which are with child, and to them which give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And there shall be a sign in the sun and the moon and the stars upon the, and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, and the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up. Lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And I believe our redemption is drawing nigh today. Um, we don't know how long the earth has yet. Just this last week or two, I think once again I heard that the clock that secular people have to show how close to the end of the world. They ticked it a little closer to 12 o'clock. They don't know. The climate fear people don't know. The only person that knows is our Heavenly Father. And if our trust is in Him, we don't have to fear. We don't have to wonder or be just, you know, what's next? Why, 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 you know, what's going to happen? But we can wait on Him. We can lift up our eyes. We can pray and take heed as it says here in Luke 21. The Lord bless each one of you this morning.